1: Everybody says you've got it made. You ask yourself why The answer's not quite what you thought it would be Consumed by the thought of forbidden love It's tempting as hell when push comes to shove that it's here, so inevitably near
0: Do you run? Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Sorrow for Sorrow by Palomara. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kind of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
2: Hi, everyone. Steve, there are probably few folks in this world who, in death, have had their corpse viewed in person by 1.5 million people. I can't think of any except for John Wilkes Booth might have been. (laughs) Might have been. Yeah, I think you'd probably have to be a museum mummy to rack up that kind of record. That or have a wicked good embalming job and then be displayed by an Ohio funeral home for 35 years. 35
0: years. Yeah,
2: that happened. Our story today is out of Sabina. That's a small town in Clinton County, halfway between Washington Courthouse and Wilmington. A sign at the town limits bills it as the Eden of Ohio. About 2,500 people live there today, but their most famous resident is a man who never lived there. That's a riddle.
0: He never lived there.
2: Yeah. How can you be a resident and never live there? Right. Yeah. They called him Eugene the Mummy. His name wasn't Eugene. And he wasn't technically a mummy, but he put Sabina on the map. It all began on June 6, 1929, and Clinton County authorities were called to a patch of grass along Wilmington Pike. That was a highway about three miles outside Sabina, where a body had been found. He was African American, maybe 50 years old, and while he had some old stab wounds on his body, he was declared dead by natural causes, Likely a heart attack.
0: So, old stab wounds, meaning they don't think this was the cause of death.
2: No, 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 not okay. at all. This was a natural death. And, like I said, probably a heart attack. Nobody knew who he was, although some townspeople said they saw him walking in the area the day before, presumably a drifter looking for a job. This was just four months before the official start of the Great Depression. One person who had seen him thought he looked ill. Another witness said they saw him leaning against a fence post, looking relaxed and thoughtful. He wasn't relaxed, he was dead. The man had no identification on him. Besides the clothes he wore, all he had tucked into his pocket was a dollar 40 cents and a slip of paper with the address 1118 Yale Avenue, Cincinnati. Huh. Well, authorities followed that clue but that address went to a vacant lot. Next door to the lot was a house whose occupant had no idea about the body found in Sabina. That homeowner's name was Eugene Johnson, and apparently for lack of any other name, and probably to that homeowner's dismay, authorities started calling their corpse Eugene. So back in Sabina the Littleton Funeral Home prepared the body. Owner Olin Moon embalmed the body to preserve it, presumably in the hope some family member would come to identify him. Then they put him on display in a small independent brick building in the funeral home's yard. It was not far from a bus stop. The building had a window so folks could have a look, but they could also enter the building and even touch him. It wasn't uncommon for funeral homes to preserve and display unclaimed bodies, hoping someone would collect them, but the standard was more like 30 days. And in the confines of the funeral home, as you'll soon learn, this case goes well beyond that. Because for the next 35 years, Eugene was a bona fide roadside attraction. Buses running between Cincinnati and Columbus always gave passengers a chance to get out and stretch their legs and pay Eugene a visit.
0: you got to be kidding me. Wow.
2: No. People, they even read news reports about him and traveled from several states away to see him. Let's go see Eugene. Let's go go see Eugene. Eugene. (laughs) Uh, It was not unusual to see as many as six tour buses lined up on the street with a queue of travelers waiting for their turn to look in on Eugene.
0: Now, was there a price to pay? to?
2: No. No, no. And apparently the good folks of Sabina didn't think this was so odd. Eugene had this rather serene look on his face. He was laid out on a couch. He was dusted and cleaned regularly. His black suit, white shirt, and tie were changed once a year to keep them fresh. Unfortunately, Eugene also became the object of pranksters. Local kids stole his gold teeth. And it became a ritual to pluck a hair out of his mustache to prove they saw him. High school seniors would kidnap Eugene and move him to other locations. Sometimes he'd show up on someone's front porch. Sometimes they'd just prop Eugene up in the back of the car and take him on a joyride or to the local drive-in restaurant. (laughs) Could you imagine showing up at the drive-in eating burgers with a corpse sitting in your backseat? No,
0: that's... Wild.
2: He was always retrieved and returned to his showcase. Somewhere along the way, he lost a couple of fingers. Um, otherwise, the only time he was missing from his brick home was when he was loaned each year to the Circleville Pumpkin Festival. <laughs> <laughs> that was Eugene's vacation.
0: You know what? I, I wish I was... Uh, treated that way in death, maybe maybe you can
2: maybe there's something maybe to be you said can for make that. This
0: happen if I if I pass before you,
2: yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Take me on Ohio mystery tours, and you know.
2: <laughs> well, listen to this one. In November of 1958, he was taken all the way to the Ohio State University in Columbus. That's a 55 mile drive from his red wow. brick home. In the early morning darkness, they perched him on a bench on the campus and covered him with newspapers so that he could startle students come morning. Well, it didn't get that far. OSU employee Elijah Kellum found him and called police. And fortunately, a patrolman knew about the story of Eugene the Mummy, and they were able to trace where the body had come from and got him back home by 8.30 that morning. This time, the funeral home installed bars in front of Eugene... That's a good idea. ...that allowed visitors to still enter the building and view him, but not be within reach of him. It would take another six years before the Littleton Funeral Home was ready to bury him. They were finally done with the vandalism and the pranksters and the people banging on the door of the funeral home asking to see the petrified man while they were inside attending to grieving families. Besides, what might have seemed amusing and intriguing to one generation was now considered grotesque and disrespectful. Eugene was fitted with a brand-new suit of clothes, taken to Sabina Cemetery, and laid to rest beneath a tombstone that said, Eugene, found dead 1928, buried 1964. You'll notice that death year was wrong. He was actually found in 29. So oh. even in that act, they, they didn't quite get it right. The event wasn't publicized. I, I wonder if it was just done quietly, uh, lest someone object to their um, claim to fame being put in the ground.
0: So so imagine this. you're You're at a funeral of one of your loved ones. And then, hey, let's go see the corpse next door. Yeah. That's what would happen. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, That's
2: yeah. he no. was there for anybody to see. Hmm. So at the funeral, uh, according to the Sabina News Record, chairs were set up to represent absent family and friends, and eight pallbearers carried the casket from the hearse to the gravesite. It was a small but dignified service on a cool and cloudy October day and overseen by Methodist minister F.M. Wentz and thus mark the final chapter of a 35-year-old mystery. Now Eugene's marker is beneath a large shady maple tree and adorned with hundreds of scattered coins, trinkets, smooth stones, plastic flowers, and figurines left by modern-day visitors. If you want to pay him a visit, here are the directions left by someone on the internet. You enter Sabina Cemetery, take the first road on the left, follow that road, Then turn down the second road on your right. That's across from the Charles Allen Mausoleum. Take the next right and come to an intersection of three roads. Take an immediate left, and the grave is under the second large tree on your left. So there, go pay Eugene a respectful visit and and leave him a a nice polished stone or a,
0: a coin. That's right, and if any of you listeners go visit him, take pictures for us.
2: Yeah. That'd be great. Definitely. Listen
0: to our podcast on the way, too, and get the directions from Paula.
2: <laughs> well, a lot of people have been out there. I, there are comments on the internet from people who have made that pilgrimage. And in, in 2009, a woman named Marjorie Ray commented on com that she used to go see Eugene when she was a little girl. She said when she was a child, she would go visit her great aunt who lived across the street from the Littleton Funeral Home. And she said they used to play around the coffins. You know, there wasn't, there weren't video games back then. Okay, you played around the coffins. And they were always fascinated by the body on display in that brick building. She wrote, We were children and didn't think much about why he was there, but we made many visits to see him. I remember staring at him for long periods of time because he was just so interesting to look at. We had not experienced a death yet to anyone we knew and didn't fully understand what death was. Anyway, in 2017, some Ohio performing artists created a show called 13 Dead Dreams of Eugene. They said they were inspired by tales from a friend who worked at the Littleton Funeral Home in Sabina. Apparently, while Eugene was in residence, some townsfolk reported sharing the same dreams and attributed the communal experience to their mummy. On another site called Lipstick Alley, a commenter disgusted by the way Eugene had been treated in death made a really interesting point. Eugene's estimated age put his birth year within a decade of the Emancipation Proclamation that freed slaves. Oh, interesting. So it's quite possible Eugene was the first born free man in his family.
0: Oh, wow. That's cool.
2: Yeah. By the way, the funeral home had a registry book for people to sign. And from 1929 to 1956, they had collected a million signatures. And as I alluded to the start of the podcast, some estimate that by the time they finally buried Eugene in 64, up to a million and a half people had seen him in person. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, for tonight's Armchair Detective, we have with us Kevin Moore from Toledo. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Paula. Kevin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself?
3: Yeah, well, uh, thank you for having me on. Professionally, I'm a museum curator, Uh, I'm an artifacts curator with the Rutherford b hayes presidential museum
2: hey you mentioned that you recently you've been working on an exhibit about ohio folklore why don't you tell us a little bit about that
3: yeah uh so that's how i discovered uh your wonderful podcast is is doing a little bit of research on ohio's rich folklore and um one of the fun things about being a museum curator is not just uh caring for collections, but also using those things to teach people history through exhibits. And and one thing that uh, we're working on now is an exhibit on Ohio's um, urban legends, its folklores, its myths. Um, So looking at um, tales like the Ohio Grassman, the Luffling Frog, um, supposedly haunted locations throughout the state. Uh, It's been a lot of fun to research.
2: When is that exhibit gonna be open?
3: Uh, so that'll open on uh, February 28th.
2: And is that at the Rutherford B. Hayes Memorial? Yeah,
3: it's at the, it's at the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library and Museums. It's, um, uh, it is it is going to be called Ohio in the Natural History.
2: Okay. And is that in Toledo?
3: It's in Fremont, Ohio. Fremont. Okay. Uh, so wow. halfway between Toledo and Cedar Point.
2: Oh, well, I need a reason to get up there, so I think you just gave it to me. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, let's get into Eugene here, because I got to tell you, the f- thing that just comes to the top of my head, the first thing I, I want to talk about, is just this concept of a community not being freaked out by having this mummy on display for so long, even after it was you know, taken out and used for pranks, taken on joy rides. They say possibly up to 1.5 million people had come to town to touch it and stare at it. They used to like pluck the mustache hairs off of it. I'm trying to understand the culture that would allow this to happen without some charge of like gross abuse of a corpse or something. Maybe you can give some insight into that.
3: As we know, cultural sensitivities 100 years ago are completely different than they are today. And maybe uh, one place to start with the way we treat and display human remains is starting with displaying living people. Um, So, for example, in 1897, there was a fairly famous case of a um, a man named Minick Wallace, he was a native Inuit uh, Eskimo uh, from Greenland who he and his family, there's about 12, 13 of them, uh, who were taken from Greenland, um, lured, um, I guess would be the appropriate word, and they were brought to New York City, and they were put on display in the uh, American Museum of Natural History. Um, as living people. So people would pay admission to come see these Eskimos living uh, behind ropes in a fake Arctic exhibit.
2: That sounds like a human zoo. Uh,
3: That's essentially what it was, yeah. And the horrible tragedy behind this is they didn't have immunities to Western diseases, so much of the family, uh, much of the family contracted tuberculosis and died, and the youngest child, Minnick, Uh, the museum actually staged a fake burial of his father uh, and then proceeded to take the father's skeleton and put it on display. Uh, And it wouldn't be until 1994, 95, before his remains were actually taken back to Greenland and given a proper indigenous burial. And I think this uh, case is a prime example of attitudes towards Uh, towards the dead and towards other other cultures
2: do you think it was easier to because the inuits were you know they were minorities in eugene's case he was african-american was it more acceptable to treat minorities that way or did we also treat caucasians that way
3: uh, it was. It was absolutely wrapped up in in racism and colonialism uh, and and imperialism at the time. This is this is an ongoing issue with museums today. I mean, obviously we don't put uh, living subjects on display, um, but there is this issue on putting on display the dead, because a lot of museums their collections of um, bodies uh, of bones or mummies. Uh, in some cases, usually come from non-Western cultures, Native Americans. For a lot of British museums, it's uh, the Maori people of, of New Zealand and Australia. And a lot of these, I don't want to use the term artifacts, but part of these collections were acquired by archaeologists who would discover a Native American burial site and they would start digging around and with little regard to the people who were buried there for their wishes, little regard for their descendants' wishes, just dug them up and put them in the museum's collection. And so an ongoing issue with museums today is what do you do with those? Do you display them? Do you return them uh, to the cultures uh, from which they were procured? And there's a large effort. It largely began in in the late 80s and 90s, at repatriating human remains. I mean, there, in the U.S. there's been something like 50,000 human subjects that have been returned to Native American tribes from museum collections to be given a proper burial. There, there's a really good quote from a, from a Native American uh, activist from the 1980s who said, if we, if we dig up a white man's grave, it's called grave robbing. But if we dig up a Native American grave, it's called archaeology.
2: Oh, that's a good quote. And so true i think yeah and, and and at the time when when eugene would have been uh
3: would have been first discovered and put on display uh you know he is another being an african american um uh, you know particularly in the in, in the north he was definitely a minority and that's what uh, a lot of these collections were they were exotic and so people would come and see them cuz they wanted to see uh, what does a Native American body look like? What does a Native American skull look like? And there was a lot of pseudoscience at the time that tried to justify racial differences in, in a scientific context. Skulls are shaped different, bones are shaped different, this type of thing. And so, for a, a lot of um, a lot of people at the time, it, it was a novelty. It was a curiosity. Uh, And so the people that were, the spectators that would come to uh, attend these exhibits and see these bodies weren't doing so from any kind of educational standpoint. They weren't uh, coming to learn more about, you know, indigenous culture or learn more about um, anthropology. They were doing it just for something entertaining, uh, which is, you know, incredibly disrespectful to the dead.
2: Right. The familial DNA technology that they're using these days to catch serial killers, it's only for that. I mean, you're only supposed to be going into these files if you're trying to catch a killer or identify a killer. But part of me thinks what a great favor we would do to Eugene if we could find out who he was and give him a name and let his family Kind of take ownership of of his history i don't know is that going too far, or is that something that you know if it were within our realm to do, something we should think about doing
3: that's that's a good question because you look at when he was discovered, you know they they left they embalmed him and they kind of left a window for somebody to. To claim him or identify him, and nobody nobody did so, and so so this man essentially died alone, with no no family at least nearby who could come and uh, observe his funeral and give him a proper burial, which you know is of course quite sad. And so it might be you know it's a lot of speculation here, but you know he could have had a family at the time that was looking for him. He was a missing person; they didn't know where he was, and so that might in, in possibly offer some justice for him, you know, nearly a century later to figure out who he is and, you know, give him, give his descendants uh, a little bit of closure if he was considered a missing person in the family.
2: You know, all of these stories that we call folklore and urban legend, you know, there there is a value to honoring them and respecting them for, I think, their role in a particular time of our state's history and our evolution as as human beings. You mentioned about some museums now trying to return remains and, and that sort of thing to to be more sensitive today. Is it is it tough to have that balance of like we want to still recognize and honor uh, uh, something in our history? for the role it played at that time compared to how we feel about it today. Is, is there a balance there? Or do we need to just shut off some parts of our history if they become just too weird? Am I making sense?
3: <laughs> yes. Yes, you are. This, this is a, a, a touchy issue in the museum field. And, and it's something that uh, gets debated at conferences, graduate school programs. They debate these, these ethical issues. And there's not yet a, a clear consensus answer because on one hand, uh, you know, you do have the respecting the rights of, of the dead. But on the other hand, you do have um, the practices that were the norm uh, 100 years ago are part of the historical record. And there, there is... Uh, an argument to be made for wanting to preserve uh, uh, preserve that record and, and what was the norm at the time and what uh, where have we come from? There there are these heating arguments of wanting to respect the rights of, of the dead who never gave any consent to be on display uh, or to be moved uh, after they were buried. But there's also this other argument to be made for preserving. Uh, that history of of how we treated other cultures and how how we've evolved in our cultural sensitivity. And so there's an argument to be made that there's there's purpose to keeping those in collections, but that some people make that argument. There's researchers one hundred years from now are going to be looking at how uh, the museum field has changed over time and, and these, uh, examples will provide uh, evidence for that. So you mentioned, you know, should we shut off part of history? Uh, that's not something that a lot of historians want to do either. Even though it's a, a part of history that nobody's really proud of, it is something that does need to be remembered.
2: Well, you know what they say, those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it, or something very similar to that, but the point there, being there, that... There's also an addendum to that,
3: that those who remember history are still doomed to repeat it. They're just less surprised.
2: I like That's probably more <laughs> appropriate, yes, more accurate. <laughs> well, one thing I'm curious about with this whole case is, it, as morbid as
3: it sounds, but the, the preservation of Eugene... Because the, the the thing I'm struggling with is how he became a mummy. I mean, I know they embalmed him, but embalming someone doesn't automatically make you a mummy. You know, that gets you through the funerary services, but decomposition continues.
2: Well, that's, so that's worth saying, that's because apparently they did some kind of really heroic effort to preserve him. And we okay. did an episode about a year or so ago on... A body that was alleged to have been John Wilkes Booth, and it was the same situation where the funeral home preserved it, and it was taken to carnivals and put on display for decades, and yet seemed to not be decomposing. So is that just a stroke of luck, or did they know something we weren't giving them credit for?
3: So uh, I'm... Not at all an expert in the preservation of organic materials, and, and kind of the, for a, a clear-cut answer on this, uh, you know, we we would probably want to ask a mortician, but uh, my understanding is the embalming process decays decomposition for, for a time, usually to get you through the funerary service. But once uh, that's completed, decomposition is dependent on a whole host of factors. Ambient temperature, humidity, access to oxygen—all uh, kinds of things. So there's a lot of variability in how long of, um, um, a a body, whether animal or human, would take to decompose. It, it just depends on where it's at. Uh, and in this case, it sounds mostly like they housed Eugene in in a brick building out back, but outside the funeral home. And so it, it would have needed some kind of I would assume, some kind of climate control for, for preservation um, because the environment of Ohio with uh, you know, hot summers, cold winters, uh, a lot of humidity uh, doesn't really lend itself to preservation. Um, and I know that um, you know, the other example that kind of comes to mind is how the uh, Soviet Union preserved Vladimir Lenin's body and put him on display uh, in Moscow. I know that that required continuous effort by the Soviet government to keep him somewhat preserved, and it was somewhat of a losing battle. So I imagine this is somewhat of a parallel to keep him in somewhat decent condition to keep him on display and, you know, and to stand him up in different, different pranks and so forth. Have you ever heard of the uh, frozen dead guy in Colorado? I think it's in Boulder.
2: Um, I don't think so.
3: Remind me. So there's, there's, there's a guy who died probably 20 years ago now, maybe even longer. And he, I believe this was in his will, he just wanted to be on display perhaps. But he's in a shed in a town in Colorado. It might be Boulder, maybe Colorado Springs. Where, But the locals continually keep packing the shed with ice to preserve him. Oh. And it's actually become a cultural event they have frozen dead guys festival there every year oh. and it's become a huge event celebrating this this guy's um, frozen
2: body in, in a shack in colorado oh my gosh uh, kevin anything else uh no no that's it this, this has been a uh, a lot
3: of fun to talk to both of you i have very much enjoyed this and thank you for having me on
0: coming up on five minute news That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more
2: on this and every
0: episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
2: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Andrew Palomaro works at the Cincinnati Art Museum, and he's a high school soccer coach. But like so many talented musicians, he tries hard to find the time to write songs and perform for others when he can. You can find him on all the social media sites, on Bandcamp, or listen to his music on Spotify. He performs under just his last name, Palomera.
0: At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of his song, Sorrow for Sorrow. Here's the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
1: He makes the great, he's well-to-do. Brings home flowers and a smile for you. And at every turn. He earns any burns for you night and day Those are the things that you want in a man But there's something in you that he can't understand Have you found an end to the love that you sent Forbidden love, it's tempting as hell when push comes to shove And now that it's here, so inevitably near